Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Uh, ooh. Uh, <laughs> a lot of woo-hoo-ing. I don't it's know like what a, that was. It's like a very tired uh, Super Mario. Uh, <laughs> I am Justin Burke, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chu Manchu and our wonderful producer, Dr. Dr. Becca Raymond Kolker. Becca, how we doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, so glad to be here. So great to have you, Becca. Another wonderful episode produced by Dr. Becca Raymond Kolker. Our guest tonight is Dr. Channing Brown to discuss the very important topic of weight-neutral health or health at every size. But first, hey, Chris, can you remind us about the show? Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Tonight, we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Channing Brown. Channing Brown is a MedPeds primary care physician who is passionate about resident education, transitions from pediatric to adult care, and eliminating weight stigma and bias in medicine. She currently serves as an assistant program director for the MedPeds residency program at UAB. Her clinical time is divided between teaching in the internal medicine and pediatric residency continuity clinics and seeing her own patients in a MedPeds primary care faculty practice, living the dream. Dr. Brown teaches us how counseling should focus on a nutrition and activity and not number on a scale, how to use weight-neutral language in counseling, and evidence-based ways you can support your pediatric patients' overall health. Becca, do you think people will like it? I can't wait to hear more. I mean, (laughs) weight-neutral. Great. All right. So we are very excited to get started and meet Dr. Channing Brown. Uh, Dr. Brown, welcome to the Cribsiders. Thank you. So glad to be here. We are excited to have you. We start every show by embarrassingly talking about how informal we are and asking permission. Is it okay if we go by first name? Uh, can we call you Channing? Yes, absolutely. Excellent. So we're all good friends here. Uh, It's an informal group. Really appreciate it. And I would love to get to know you a little bit better. I know our listeners would love to get to know you a little bit better. Um, And so can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's what's your one-liner that tells listeners about you and maybe something outside of medicine? Yeah. Um, so I am a 30-year-old med-peds primary care doctor and assistant program director at UAB, who is a wife and mom to, a, I think, the most adorable 12-month-old in the world. Um, and a lover of ice cream and the bachelor that might be a little bit more than a one line, but that's, that's my best stab at it. <laughs> that's great. Congratulations on the one year old. Very you. cute. Can confirm on sound check said baby was extremely cute. So. Oh, <laughs> and trying to talk to me all about evidence-based medicine is very impressive. Wow. She is, she is ahead of her, uh, <laughs> definitely ahead of her milestones. Uh, that's amazing. Amazing. So reading a lot recently, actually, somehow, I don't know how, um, as an intern, Impressive. but what is a book that every physician or just like every person should read? Pick one. Yeah. Um, well, I'll go with either. I think either one could be a, I think this could be applicable to anyone, um, people, physicians, um, and physicians are people. 
But intuitive eating is a book that really changed the way that I look at um, food, eating, and counseling patients on um, eating and dietary changes along with exercise as well. It's a really wonderful book that's written by two dietitians, Evelyn Trivoli and Elise Reich. But it's a great book that they put together from their experience in working as registered dietitians um, with many clients over the years um, and looking back at the evidence behind the dietary counseling strategies they'd been taught as dietitians. Um, And so they did a lot of work that actually really inspired a lot of what we're going to be talking about today and I think is a really helpful book to read for anybody who's interested in um, kind of nerding out about um, nutrition counseling and uh, or just likes to eat themselves. I can relate. Yeah, that's a good uh, uh, follow-up book too. And I'm excited to ask more questions about this too, but I'll, I'll leave it to Chris to do our next Get to Know Your question. All right. So the one that I, I often ask is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Yeah. Um, so I, I have thought about this a lot and I think my favorite failure um, comes from my first day of intern year. Um, I was in the NICU, which is a place that um, is challenging to many, but especially to us MedPeds physicians. MedPeds don't love NICU. Um, and so I... In our NICU, we have Vocera, which is a walkie-talkie system rather than pagers. And I received a um, call on my Vocera. And the nurse, who is a really excellent nurse, who was taking care of one of my patients, said, this patient hasn't had any urine output on my shift. And I sat there as a first-day intern and could not think of why on earth this nurse was telling me this information. And sat there for a minute and then finally said, thank you. And (laughs) clicked off my Vocera and sat there for 15 minutes trying to think about, you know, racking my brain as a a frazzled first day intern about why on earth this information was being given to me before I went to my upper level and said, I know I should know why this was told to me, but I cannot think of why this was relevant. And uh, my very kind upper level spent um, the next few minutes not laughing at me, uh, which was very kind, um, but spent the next few minutes talking through with me um, all the different things that maybe I should have been thinking about and how we could address this nurse's concerns. And then gave me the biggest piece of advice that I think um, I took away from this interaction uh, beyond the fact that I needed to remember (laughs) how to triage a clinical question, but that when you have a uncertainty about why a nurse is giving you information, it's always best to ask, um, is there something that you're concerned about right now? And oftentimes you'll get much more information by collaborating with nurses or whether it's respiratory therapist or any any other um, professional that you're working with by simply being humble and asking more questions than trying to tough it out alone. So I got I get a good laugh about that. And I share that with all my medical students and um, <laughs> interns. So if they ever feel dumb, I'm like, no, I, I think that that was about as low as you could get on day one. So well, that's, that's a great story. And honestly, a great takeaway. You know, I, I think I found the same that even talking to patients, you know, when when they bring me like a, a chief complaint or something, and I say, so what are you concerned about? That seems to get me a lot of the way there, too. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Nurses, I feel like, got me through a lot of residency. I would often be like asking the nurse, okay, if a more competent resident were here and you were telling them that, what, what would they typically do? What would what, what the person before me do? And let's, let's try if that. If you could put orders works. into the computer, yeah. what would you what do? Yeah. Yeah. One of my suggest? favorite intern year responses is, um, and what, what do you normally do in this situation? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then good li- good at least buys me time, you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> What are the vitals? That's another good. Can I get a full set of vitals on, yes. on my way over? Can you use it in a sentence? Yeah. 
All right, this good. is great. I am, I am very excited to um, dive into some content. But before we do that, let's hear from one of the sponsors that helps support the show. So, Sam, have you ever been so ashamed looking up clinical information online, things like the specific dosage of acetaminophen or how to spell the word ophthalmology? Oh, absolutely. And have you ever been to the point where you used incognito mode to cover your tracks while you're looking this stuff up? Every single day. Well, first of all, Sam, don't be so hard on yourself. We all have gaps in knowledge and shouldn't be embarrassed. We need to normalize this. But second, that incognito search is probably not as incognito as you think. Web browsers may bank tracking your search history while you're secretly looking up things like the generic name for doxycycline. That's a really good point. But um, Justin, what is the generic name for doxycycline? Don't worry about that, Sam. Worry instead about how to make yourself invisible online. And here's how I do it. Use ExpressVPN. It turns out even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked. Then secret cartels could theoretically buy and sell your data to randos. One of these data points, in fact, is your IP address, and that can uniquely identify you and your location. With ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server on some faraway land. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to identify you, harvest your data, or track down the teenage hacker at the beginning of the movie War Games. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash cribsiders and get three extra months for free. Whoa, three months? That's right. That's expressvpn.com slash cribsiders, exp R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Cribsiders. Go to ExpressVPN slash Cribsiders to learn more. Becca, since you are our outstanding producer for the show, do you want to you wanna start us off with the first question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And in an atypical fashion, I thought before we dive into a case, um, I thought it'd just be a little bit helpful to talk about, you know, why we're here today and um, kind of the framework and some of the questions that we're going to be talking about, um, you know, we're talking a little bit today about this um, health at every size framework, which is one model um, of conceptualizing weight and health. And so I guess just to kind of give us a little bit of background, what is that? Um, how would you define it? And what's different from the traditional weight loss paradigm of medicine that we all learned in medical school and, and residency? Yeah. So the health at every size framework or haze is what I like to call it. Just to keep away from that mouthful is a way of approaching nutrition counseling with the assumption that individuals can pursue health regardless of their weight or body size. So in this paradigm, we focus on health promoting behaviors when counseling patients rather than encouraging um, lifestyle changes with the goal of weight loss. So this means that a patient of normal BMI should be receiving the same advice and counseling as a patient with a BMI classified as overweight or obese. So essentially challenging the mindset that thinness is healthy and that fat is unhealthy and instead embracing that anyone can be pursuing health regardless of their body size. And I, I think, think that, oh, yeah. I was just going to say, and I think that framework, that just like that thinness um, doesn't equal health and being overweight or like having an elevated BMI doesn't also mean unhealthy is actually like when you put it that way, it's like, oh, yeah, we all know that we're right. always worried about people's health and different things about it, no matter what body size they are. But sometimes we just have these conceptions that are really easy to be really narrow and the way that we're thinking about it. 
Um, yeah, and I think keep that going. It, no, <laughs> I think it absolutely is uh, is something that we know, but it's not something that we always know how to put into practice well. So we certainly can think about patients that are cachectic, and we've been very concerned about them, um, or a patient with sudden weight loss that we are very worried about, even if their BMI is normal, or a patient that we have been surprised has had very normal parameters in terms of blood pressure and A1C and um, cholesterol levels, um, but is technically classified in the overweight or obese category. So I think that we all know that there are exceptions to this rule that is kind of prevalent in our culture. But yes, it's not always the easiest to apply when we're thinking about how to provide health education to our patients. So, you know, in, in my EMR that we have, it, it prints out like everyone's vitals at every, at every appointment. So they see this. And so definitely, you know, when they look in, you know, when parents or some of my older patients look in their, uh, their electronic port, patient portal, they see like flags on the system and, and they often say, Hey, this, this says it's abnormal. How do we go about re-educating or how, how do you do that discussion with them? Because theoretically it's abnormal, but how do you, how, I mean, how, do, how does that sound like? Yeah, I think that it's it's tough at first when you're introducing this concept, um, but I think it is really welcomed by a lot of patients that I've taken care of that are in larger body sizes. Patients that are in a larger body tend to experience a lot of weight stigma, um, whether that's from the medical profession or whether that's just from our society in general. But I think that the way that I start that conversation is generally saying that we know that people of all different body sizes may have different eating habits, and that does not mean that somebody is healthy or unhealthy. So, for example, we all know you can think of a friend that you may have had in high school that ate nothing but junk food and um, was incredibly thin or slim. Um, and knowing that that person necessarily does not have the most, would not necessarily have the most healthy um, biometric parameters. Uh, if you were to check their cholesterol, they still might have high cholesterol. That's one way that I will use to phrase it. I think another thing um, that can be helpful in terms of talking with patients and introducing this idea is that we know that there is actually evidence that if patients are implementing health-promoting behaviors, even if their body weight isn't changing, their risk of disease is changing. And I think that's what's really impactful to share with your patients and, and parents as well. Yeah. And I think to your point of like, this is something that, you know, patients, um, people are experiencing within their medical experiences whenever they come into the doctor or maybe go to the um, hospital or things like that, but also just in our like culture in a really widespread way. How do you, you know, how do you kind of think about the emotional charge of this conversation too? Yeah. I think I'm really glad you asked that, actually. Um, so I think that uh, it's really important to recognize that weight and nutrition are emotionally charged topics for us as physicians. Um, and I think a lot of people feel very strongly about the way that they eat um, and are passionate about their food and passionate about um, keeping their physical image a certain way. And so the information I'm presenting today challenges a lot of what we're taught in traditional medical education, which is the weight loss paradigm. And so I think it's important for us to be open to looking into the data behind the things that we've been taught and looking at how what we're doing and the way we're counseling our patients is affecting them both um, physically and emotionally and psychologically. And I would love to hear a little more on that. I know we still haven't gotten to the first case, but this framework, I think, makes a lot of intuitive sense. But to push back or, you know, to, to bring uh, along throughout medical school, throughout residency, you know, I feel like we're always taught obesity is associated with 
uh, negative health outcomes. It's associated with diabetes. It's associated with hypertension. Um, how do we reconcile using this new framework and kind of almost going against some of this traditional thought process of obesity is the cause of comorbidities? That's where we need to focus. How do we focus on reconciling this new framework with what is still being taught in a lot of med schools and residencies? Yeah. So I think that the most important thing you can think about when we go into talking about this framework is thinking that essentially correlation between obesity does not mean causation of those health comorbidities or chronic diseases. Um, and I think we know that in many studies um, that there can be confounding factors. But when we look at obesity, there really, it's not been an easy thing to study whether obesity is causative or whether it's correlated with these chronic health conditions um, and comorbidities. So while it's true that many studies that are weight loss studies show short-term one to five-year health parameter improvements when patients lose weight, Long-term follow-up typically shows about 90 to 95% of individuals who lose weight will regain that weight, if not more weight. And the other 5 to 10% frequently demonstrate eating disorder behaviors like restriction, binging, or purging. And obviously, those are not behaviors we're trying to encourage. Um, and so one of the things that really struck me the most from the intuitive eating book that I mentioned previously um, is... They mentioned that in medicine, if we had a, a medication or a treatment we were prescribing that had a 90 to 95% failure rate, we would be very unlikely to use that medicine or that treatment anymore. But this is something where it's difficult to challenge the data that is out there that is mostly short-term data, um, but it's difficult to challenge that when that's the data you're presented with over and over again in medical school. So it's interesting when you look at it, there's a term called weight cycling that I like to use, which is used to describe the pattern of weight loss followed by weight gain, which is frequently seen in patients that are chronically dieting. And the basis of health at every size movement is providing another framework where the goal is to avoid this weight cycling which we actually know can be associated with chronic health conditions um, and instead pursue sustainable health promoting behaviors without the goal of intentional weight loss. So this doesn't mean that patients won't lose weight with making health interventions. They may actually notice a change in their weight, but they may actually notice an increase in their weight as they start to exercise more and build up more body mass, or they may notice that their weight changes as they're adding more fruits and vegetables into their diet. And either one of those things can result in positive health outcomes. I really love that medical analogy of a medicine that doesn't work 95% of the time. And I think we always fall back on this weight counseling when it sounds like, you know, it's really not something that's as evidence-based as, as we think it is. And, you know, I think it, again, it's stigmatizing, but also just something that we can do better. And so I'm excited to, to learn more about this framework and kind of talking about it. And so Becca has brought a, a wonderful case for us to discuss uh, Becca, want to hit us off? Yeah, yeah. So you're, you know, you're at Cashlack Children's. Um, let's let's make it a MedPeds clinic because you know we're all MedPeds here tonight. Um, so we're at Cashlack MedPeds clinic, and um, the Diety family is coming in for their um, nine and twelve year old well child visits to the clinic. You know, they're both in one room because they're not quite teens yet. And you're about to, you're pre-charting on both of them, and as you quickly glance through the vitals, you notice that Eliza, the 12-year-old, has pretty stable weight from her visit one year ago. You know she's growing on her sort of curve that she was on prior. No big changes there. And Amos, their nine-year-old, has climbed several percentiles in his growth curve. 
Um, so I guess just before you enter the room, how do you start to conceptualize this data around weight? And how would you begin to start approaching information gathering from the family around this data? Yeah, I think when we're looking at growth percentiles or parameters in our pediatric patients, we need to start thinking a little bit more when we see percentiles changing. And many of us have a really clear framework for looking into the cause of a decline in growth percentiles or weight loss. But I think it's just as important for us to be inquisitive when we have a patient who has an increase in their weight or an increase in their growth percentiles, rather than just automatically characterizing this increase in body size or weight as a diagnosis, um, as obesity is often considered. So the first things that I look at when I'm doing my chart review, I look at the vitals. So is the height velocity normal? Um, If not, should I be thinking about hypothyroidism symptoms or other endocrinopathies that might be stunting um, growth while allowing the patient to still gain weight? In other cases, I might be thinking about um, if I see that the blood pressure is elevated, is there a possibility that there could be underlying hypercortisolism or do I need to be screening for um, sleep apnea? Um, And so looking at those vitals gives me a chance to be able to start building a framework and a differential in my head of the questions that I want to be asking the family. And then the next thing, we all know that history is where you get the majority of your diagnostic um, information, but I truly believe that increases in weight are often a sign or symptom of something else going on, Um, just like weight loss is often a sign or symptom of something else going on. So think about times when when we as adults have fluctuations in our weight, whether our weight is going up or down, this may be related to stressors at work, major life events, um, our crazy schedules, not being able to get to the grocery store to buy ingredients to cook dinner. And so the same thing goes for children with weight changes, even though these things may be occurring in the family, since the family is often contributing to the food that the child is taking in. So I will think about the questions that I want to ask. And, you know, it you have the benefit when you're in a primary care clinic, if you have continuity, you have the benefit of maybe knowing the family and some background. But if you don't know anything about the family, starting broadly and thinking about any recent changes in the patient or family's life, like stressors, adverse childhood events, a change in school, a sick family member, incarceration. Um, If any of these things are true, I'm going to table the lifestyle counseling and focus on supporting the patient through these changes rather than adding additional stressors to the family at the visit by prescribing exercise or nutrition changes. Other things that I will think about screening for would be screening for dieting or restrictive eating behaviors. And we often don't think about this as a risk factor for weight gain, uh, but dieting with the goal of intentional weight loss is actually a risk factor in and of itself of pediatric obesity that leads to weight gain or binge eating behaviors. And then finally, I screen for food insecurity. And it's been debated the relationship that food insecurity has um, to weight gain or pediatric obesity. But regardless, it certainly has psychosocial implications. And we know that if a child has restricted access to food, they're more likely to binge when food is available. And that may lead to spikes in their weight. Um, And so I think it's important for us to be thinking about all of those things. So one question I have, you're asking, you know, we talked a little bit about screening for food insecurities and um, also talking about stressors in, um, you know, the family life. Um, Sometimes these can be sort of really difficult situations, especially, you know, there may be even parents who are really ashamed that they can't provide for their families. You know, do you have a certain way in which you sort of approach these situations and talking to them? Um, Do you I know you said you start broadly, but is are there any other tactics you use as you're talking to these families for these sort of maybe touchy subjects? Yeah, so I think that this is where your intake um, 
form can be really helpful. So at Cashlack Children's, uh, the clinic where I attend with our residents, we have a uh, Bright Futures form that families fill out uh, that's provided by the AAP. And we have customized that. So it has questions that green for social determinants of health. And so it has questions that are in plain language, like, has there ever been a time you were worried if the food in your home might last long enough? Or has there ever been a time when you were uncertain if you had food for your next meal? And frequently, parents will not say these things out loud or they won't bring them up in a visit. But when they're going through and checking yes or no, um, I've been humbled and surprised by how many have checked yes. I have been worried about this. And that allows us to then identify a way to intervene with support services. And we have a social worker in our clinic, which is wonderful to be able to connect the family with resources. Um, so that that I think is one way to avoid maybe stepping on toes or, or being too intrusive with questions. But I think that it all depends on the way that you're asking. Um, if you're asking from a place of concern and a place of um, genuinely wanting to know more about what's going on in the family, I think parents will be more willing to open up to you if they know that you really do care about them and their child. And in having these discussions, I think they can be somewhat difficult. And I'll say I've gone into a room on occasion where either the parent will bring it up and say, I'm worried that my child is fat, um, or uh, especially if it's a adolescent or pre-adolescent, expressing that they are upset about, quote, fat. Is there kind of a baseline use of language that can be harmful and helpful in uh, talking about some of these issues when you're coming into a patient, especially if that's something that they're bringing up the concern too, that they're off the growth curve? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you asked that question. You know, I think that it was interesting as I've dug into this topic a little bit more, there actually was one study that looked at using weight language and what sort of impact that had on children. So I want to clarify weight language is is saying anything about weight. Um, so that could be saying something about the patient's weight, saying something about your own weight, a parent commenting on their need for weight loss. Um, so some examples I like to give that we hear frequently is Uh, Well, I know that he's just growing, but I know I've got to get this weight off from a parent in the room. And in that language in and of itself, if it's being said in the exam room, it's being said at home. And we know that that has implications on long-term childhood health. Um, So kids are concrete thinkers, and especially kids under age 12 really have a hard time with being able to separate the nuances of what you might be describing as a biometric marker or a um, predictor of a health outcome um, from just something that is intrinsically wrong with their body. And so it's really important that we focus on using weight neutral terms. So um, even using terms like obese, overweight, or fat can really lead to internalized weight stigma. Um, And long-term implications of children exposed to weight-centered language or weight stigma include dieting, unhealthy weight loss techniques like purging, um, increased risk of diet pill abuse, laxative abuse, uh, binge eating and eating disorders. And kids that are exposed to weight stigma and weight-centered language are also less likely to participate in exercise. And so you're actually in some ways doing more harm than you are good by bringing up any of those terms. So when I when I have a parent that comes in, to your point, Justin, when I have a parent that comes in and they say, I'm worried that my kid has gained too much weight, I try to rephrase the conversation and say, well, all kids are gaining weight um, because they're 
are growing and their bodies are growing. And so what's most important is for us to make sure that we're focusing on what we can do to help your kid grow into a healthy body. Same thing with a teenager that brings that up. I try to focus on the normal changes that are going on in their body because oftentimes these are changes that are coming with puberty, um, fat deposition in different areas of the body. And I try to focus on the normal things that we're seeing um, and then talking about ways that we can help support them in pursuing healthy behaviors that are going to help their body continue to be healthy and, and foster that positive body image. That's so helpful. And I think this is, I mean, this is something that comes up in clinic for me, like probably weekly, you know, is how do we hold, you know, patients' concerns and listen to them, but also like model, <laughs> especially when we're not really taught in medical school or even maybe in our own like communities, how to kind of model this language in, the, in an affirming way that actually focuses on, you know, patients' being functional and being happy and like, you know, holistically well. I guess one question I have for you when you do have to talk or maybe you don't have to talk, but when you do want to address something related to, you know, whether it's weight loss or weight gain or maybe associated, not necessarily causative, but associated abnormalities and and like labs or vitals, how do you model weight neutral language to provide this counseling to families? Yeah. So when I start out with reviewing the growth charts, I show the family the growth chart. So they have a visual aid uh, before we go into talking about any any commentary that I might provide on the um, growth chart. I show them the percentiles. And so I show where the child was last year and this year. Um, and I don't comment on the rate of weight gain because I think that most parents can see, oh, that is an increase or, oh, that looks like a study, like they're following the curve. Um, and the parent, because they're able to visualize that, they may acknowledge a reason for why they think weight has changed suddenly. So the, I think the best example I have of this is during COVID, many parents have said, yeah, I mean, during during quarantine and uh, doing at-home virtual school, um, they haven't had any PE and I've been scared for them to go outside. Or they might say, yeah, it's just been hard to keep them out, out of, uh, you know, the soda um, while we've been at home because um, they just want to have um, can after can of whatever soda is in the fridge. Um, and so it's helpful for them to have an opportunity to kind of fill in the gaps and narrate to you what they're seeing. I think if the height velocity is preserved um, and we're not concerned that there is an underlying growth issue, then I just present this information in a very neutral way. And then I use it as a way to introduce my nutrition history. So I I don't necessarily dwell on the growth parameters themselves, um, but more so just give that information to the family and then move into the next step of taking my history. And can I ask, do you have a transition that you typically use if a patient looks at, or if a parent looks at the growth curve, sees that a, a child is way off the growth curve, for example, and says, is this bad? Do you transition to say something like, it's not bad, but it's a sign we need to you know, focus on? Or is it really even, nope, not bad, health at every size, let's move on and talk about fruits and vegetables. Like, Do you have a transition for those, especially those kids who I think we have seen that are, they have the dot and then the little arrow right. above it because they're off the graph? Right, right. Um, so usually the transition that I use is I say, we know that kids are growing. And so there are times when kids are going to be, some kids are going to grow from a height standpoint faster. Some kids are going to grow from a weight standpoint faster. The most important thing we can focus on is making sure that we're giving your child the right building blocks to make sure their body's healthy. And so let's talk about some ways to focus on that and make sure that um, we can help support you in those efforts. I love that. And so you mentioned some of the nutrition questions or counseling. What What is your typical 
uh, approach to addressing childhood nutrition? Yeah. So I I like to start with gathering information about what the family and patient do eat on an average day. I think this gives you an opportunity to have the family share what's available for them, what they're already doing that maybe really positive that you didn't realize and what is realistic for them. So one example might be a child would say, well, I have cereal and milk for breakfast. And then at school, I have chocolate milk and pizza or a hamburger, whatever the school serves. Um, And then after lunch or after school, I eat a bag of mini muffins for a snack. And then dinner is usually my mom makes chicken and mac and cheese and something like green beans or peas. Um, And so now you have a starting point to work with. So I might say something like, well, that's awesome. You're already eating a vegetable at dinner. Do you think there are other times during the day you could add a vegetable or fruit to your plate? Um, Or are there some other options where you might eat a vegetable or fruit at school with your lunch? If a patient doesn't mention any vegetables or fruits, then uh, I might take it a step back and say, okay, are there any vegetables or fruits that you like that your family eats regularly or keeps around the house? And this is where I try to pull the parents in as well. I ask them what types of foods they have access to and what types of foods they buy or serve at mealtimes. And then I think that, you know, as I move forward, then I like to gather a little bit of information about the patient and the family's baseline understanding of nutrition. So, I am always surprised by what we take for granted as common knowledge. Um, So one example I like to give is I had a um, a senior in high school who was going on a full ride to a prestigious scholarship um, on a football scholarship. And he wanted to have some information about, he asked me, what should he be eating to be healthy um, as he's going into being a college athlete? And so I started with the MyPlate model. So we could kind of, as as a foundation, which I often do, and asked him, you know, tell me some examples of a. Um, do you know? I said, do you know what a carb is? Can you give me some examples of a carb? And he said, uh, lettuce. Um, and then I say, can you give me an example of a protein? Um, and he said, a protein bar. Um, and those were, you know, this is a, a kid that's very bright, very motivated. Um, but that's the level of nutrition that I assume everyone has now when I start with this um, conversation. So um, I like to focus on the fact that growing bodies need all the right building blocks to be able to grow healthy and strong. So I start with the MyPlate method, which I think most of us are familiar with. But it's a nice visual aid that really can be applied to any any diet, any um, culture, any setting where you're eating food, um, it's pretty easy to be able to visualize dividing your plate. So half of your plate would be fruits or vegetables. The other half uh, would be divided between grains and proteins. And so I spend some time using this as a teaching tool. And unfortunately, due to the prevalence of diet culture, a lot of families and of our pediatric patients view limiting certain macronutrients or these building blocks, as I term them, as healthy. And so um, low-fat diets they may think are healthy or low-carb diets they may think are healthy. But really, I try to emphasize that our body needs all of the building blocks in order to grow and develop um, a healthy brain and a healthy body. Um, So I go through each area of the plate and I ask the patient or parent, depending on their age, to list some foods that they eat that fit into each category. So this gives me the ability to gain an understanding of whether the patient knows the difference between fruits or vegetables, proteins, carbohydrates, and then also gives me an idea of some of the things they already eat and they're familiar with. And then I like to ask about what the child likes to do to move their body. Um, I give them some examples like playing outside, walking a dog, playing basketball, dancing. Um, TikTok dancing has become a new um, favorite thing to be mentioned in clinics. That's what all my that's what all my patients are doing. Yes. It's, it's all TikTok, TikTok dancing. It's all incredible. TikTok. We um, talked about this in our blood pressure episode. Was uh, 
we were they're going to get their their patients do more TikTok dancing. So I like it. There at some point there will be a study done on um, the evidence basis for TikTok dancing and chronic disease prevention. <laughs> but I give them examples, and then um, we talk about some ways that they can build more movement into the day. Um, and I focus on using language like building, um, helping them grow um, healthy and strong, and building their strong muscles and bones, and keeping their heart healthy. Um, so I try to keep language pretty basic, but mostly focusing on growing and developing in a strong and healthy body. I guess like one question I have is, you know, once you kind of gather all of this information and you, you know, give some education also around like macronutrients and kind of what a plate could look like, how do you kind of approach counseling around making maybe changes from like a family perspective, especially when diet is something that's so like central to kind of like identity and sometimes culture um, and also just like the functioning or dysfunctioning of families too. Right. Um, Well, I try to use this information that I gathered. And a lot of times this happens um, kind of interspersed during the education piece. We're creating a plan. But I try to facilitate a conversation between the patient and the parent so that they're partnering together um, and able to identify some available nutritious foods that the child likes and is excited about that might be able to be incorporated into meals and snacks. And ultimately try to focus on one or two positive changes that we could implement that are feasible for the family. So one way I like to think about framing that is thinking about one nutrition goal and one movement goal that might be feasible. So those might be as small as um, could we, if the child says I'm drinking chocolate milk at lunch every day, could we switch to drinking milk or water and ask the child if they might be open to considering that. I think really the biggest thing is trying to find a way for the family or patient to be the one creating this goal. Um, And so what I usually start with is I'll ask, is there anything you can think of, um, now that we've talked about some of these things, is there anything you can think of that would be a way for you to add some fruits and vegetables into your diet or increase the water that you're drinking or limit sugary beverages that you're drinking? And oftentimes the kids will say, well, actually, I'd like to eat an apple for a snack. Uh, I like apples, mom, if we could have those around the house. And then the parent may say, yeah, well, I buy apples and you don't eat them. So that provides an opportunity for dialogue between mom and dad or caregiver um, and child to be able to have that conversation and kind of partner together. And then when it comes to movement, I think it's just as important for getting parental um, or caregiver buy-in because oftentimes movement is something that's going to have to be supervised by a parent or a caregiver. And so um, finding an activity the family can do together, I think, is one of the big ways that I have found to be successful in terms of setting a concrete goal. Uh, Oftentimes, families are wanting to make healthy changes for themselves. And this is a way you can provide some counseling to the parent, which is an added bonus if you're in a MedPeds clinic. I love to follow up on that, too, because I think I, I love this, you know, going in with weight neutral language, identifying uh, possibilities to increase healthy lifestyles. Do you have an approach for when the parent is not on board or when a parent is saying, um, you know, I've had parents come in and say like, uh, she won't stop eating. She just eats, you know, ice cream and, and cupcakes or or it's when she's at her dad's house or she's getting fat, she's going to get made fun of. And when a parent is really not necessarily trying to see each other opportunities. Do you have a way of counseling parents to get them on board to this health at every size framework or any any insights for us as providers of how we can at least maybe kind of start that conversation so that they're looking at their child's weight in a different way? Yeah. And I, I guess I'll preface this with this is not 
necessarily evidence-based, but based on my experience and um, my kind of practice at trying to implement these techniques in my own clinical practice. But I think that one way that I will try to address this is trying to share with them that, you know, we know that kids don't respond well to pressure. So if you look at a toddler that's a picky eater, the more that you, there's actually one of, uh, there was one study that I looked at with picky eating that said if parents were encouraging and really pushing vegetables, a toddler was less likely to be eating the vegetables. And so almost a uh, reverse psychology mentality is better when it comes to um, trying to encourage lifestyle changes and and really being a role model rather than um, pushing a change on the child. And so when I really try to encourage them is that when it comes to mealtimes, the parent is the one to set meals um, and to offer what is going to be eaten. And the child's the one to decide what they eat on their plates. That may mean that if a parent serves a meal that is, uh, as we mentioned previously, chicken and mac and cheese and um, green beans, the child may only eat the mac and cheese. But offering those options and the child seeing that the family eats these other foods on a regular basis and, and providing balanced portions over time gives the message that no foods are off limits and takes away that drive to potentially overcompensate when those foods that may be more desirable are available. Um, So if a child is restricted on a certain food, like if um, candy is off limits or if uh, dessert is off limits, then frequently when they are exposed to an environment where they have access to that food, um, they're going to indulge because they don't know when the next time is that it's going to be available. Whereas if foods are readily available at their home um, and we look at a cookie just like any other food, there is less likelihood that they're going to feel that need to essentially binge when they do have the access to that food. So that's one way that I will phrase it to parents. Another way that I'll kind of try to phrase it to help kind of give perspective is if you've ever been on a trip and you've been eating lots of delicious, rich food, you, everyone has that feeling at some point of, man, I really just need to get back to eating. Like, I'd really like some fruit or I would like a sandwich, um, something kind of more bland at some point. And, or the example of kids eating um, Halloween candy. At some point, the kid stops because they don't, they don't want anymore. And so if we really do trust our bodies and trust that um, our children's bodies also have those same um, intuitive capabilities of being able to sense when they need more of something and when they need less of something. um, And if we let them have that ability to self-regulate, they will um, if given proper guidance and um, proper access to nutritious foods. I I would love to kind of follow up that question with, um, the access being such a major important part of healthy eating. Can we talk about some of the common structural barriers that patients face in in accessing those foods? Um, Absolutely. I think that this is one of the most challenging parts of practicing uh, medicine um, and practicing pediatrics, especially because many of these factors are things that we can't write a prescription for, um, or we can't we can't magically wave a wand and um, and fix with a procedure. Um, so access to fresh foods, um, distance to parks, neighborhood safety, um, and parent ability to facilitate outdoor activities. Actually, in one study, were all associated with um, an increased risk of pediatric obesity. Um, And so I think it's really important that we also think about um, adverse childhood um, events or ACEs. We know that, I think especially as MedPeds physicians, this is really um, evident as we take care of um, whole families. We know that there is a 
a dose dependent effect of those adverse childhood events um, or kind of environmental factors that are influencing the lives and the health of our patients that are pediatric patients who will grow to be adult patients. And there's an increased risk of obesity that is dose dependent with having exposure to multiple of those ACEs. So that might be a parent um, who is incarcerated, a family member with mental illness, um, physical or sexual or psychological abuse, to name a few of those adverse childhood events. Food insecurity is one of those as well. Um, So thinking about all those factors and how many patients we take care of that have one or more of those factors present in their home um, really is eye-opening to think about maybe those are the things that we really should be looking into in terms of predictors um, of long-term health complications and comorbidities. When we think about these kind of structural barriers, it's really difficult as the pediatrician to take away these barriers while we are there in the room. But that's where I really find that the most feasible thing that we can do that um, is not on a advocacy level, which could be a whole nother podcast, um, but the most feasible thing we can do in the individual um, visit setting is really making sure that we are addressing and preventing ACEs as we can. And then we're meeting families where they are and helping them feel empowered to make positive changes for their children, no matter where they are um, and no matter what kind of access they have. So that may mean that the best way for that child to get some form of activity during the day is to do TikTok dances inside because their neighborhood is not safe for them to be able to go outdoors and run around. Um, Or it may mean that um, canned green beans are the best vegetable that they have access to because they don't have a um, grocery store within walking distance and there's no car in the family. So they can't go get a fresh bunch of organic kale or something that you might think of as a traditionally healthy food. Um, But really helping to find ways to enable them to look at the things that they do have access to and make positive changes. So adjacent to the discussion about access is sort of um, just cultural foods that people normally eat. So, you know, I'm, I'm Chinese. I grew up with white rice at like literally every single meal. And you know, now I've been taught rice is a lot of carbs and just unhealthy for me. Like, how do we, how how do we address this with our patients? How do we talk to our families who have, you know, especially large parts of carbs that are part of their cultural identity? Um, how, how do you how do you look at this, and how do you talk to families about this? Yeah. I think that it really is a shame because I think that in our culture right now, um, I refer to diet culture as kind of the overarching culture of this pressure to be on the latest diet trend or to be losing weight or to be fitting a certain um, a certain body stereotype that is perceived to be um, attractive or quote unquote normal and healthy. And, and really a lot of these things are um, stigmatizing to many cultures um, and exclusive to many cultures um, and very United States centric. <laughs> and so when we look at, uh, when I look at some of the foods that like you mentioned, so rice, I mean, rice is a staple for the majority of the world or grains of some form are a staple for the majority of the world. And yet with there being such an such an emphasis on popular diets like keto diet or paleo diet or the low carb diet there is a really uh there is a really um, unfortunate situation that has happened where a lot of patients feel that these are not healthy foods and they are ashamed to be eating them or they you'll hear comments from parents like well, I know that my son's eating too much rice, or uh, I know he shouldn't be eating um, tortillas, or yams even have been um, in some ways um, kind of 
talked about in a negative way. And all of these foods are really important parts of various cultural diets. And so I think that it's really important that families of all backgrounds be able to embrace their cultural foods and for us to be mindful of that um, and empowering families to enjoy these foods while incorporating positive dietary changes. So one thing that I will encourage um, residents to do when I'm teaching about health education um, and, and diet education in clinic um, is if a family um, is talking about foods that they love, try to ask about, you know, are there any dishes that you guys make that have vegetables in them that um, your family really likes? Or are there any dishes that you make where, um, you know, we could incorporate um more vegetables or fruits? Um, are there ways that um, we could be intentional about using those dishes um, during the week to make sure that that's being honored and you're able to make the foods that your family loves and that you love that are important to you, um, but also not entirely telling them that they have to change the way that they cook and change the foods that they eat 100%. I think we've talked about, there's a lot of, you know, it's, we've talked about a lot of the different components that go into healthy eating, whether it's the cultural stigma and ACEs. And I mean, there's so much. And I wonder if I, I think about this a lot as, uh, with access to food, if I did residency in like a very, you know, inner city Baltimore and they didn't, there wasn't always great access, but even if there was, you know, I, sometimes I think the 16 year old inner city kids not going to eat a salad. Not because he have access to fresh fruit, but he, you know, friends are going to think he's a dope. Um, and I want, you know, there's almost like a stigmatization of healthy foods in adolescence. Um, is that something that you've come across? Is that something that there's, uh, you know, a, a TikTok star that's making, you know, lettuce cool again or any thoughts on how to address <laughs> that on those patients, especially in the adolescent years that have no interest in trying bok choy or eating carrots, you know, that are on a BK diet and that's what their severe adolescent mind wants to do. Yeah, I don't have any advice for uh, getting those teenagers to eat bok choy. Um, but <laughs> the way that I have, um, I mean, the, really the way that I, I go back to is, again, just encouraging them to be the one that's making the choices. So I, I liken this to like, if you went, uh, if you went to the doctor tomorrow, and without any uh, getting to know you, they said, um, you really should just be eating a salad for every meal. Um, and you should be uh, making a fresh smoothie every morning. And you should be uh, meditating at night before you go to bed and getting eight hours of sleep. And you're an intern. Um, you know, you know that that is not feasible for your life. And so the best thing you may be able to do is to like eat an apple once a day, you know, like, and, uh, and that's from the call room or there's a, there's a snack bar somewhere in the hospital and you can get um, some fruit or vegetables. So, I, I think that we forget um, that if it's not easy for us to do, it's not likely um, going to be easy for our patients to do. And so I think the most important thing in any motivational interviewing setting that you have that you are trying to accomplish is to have the patient be the one to come up with the change um, rather than you being the one to suggest, hey, I think you should try these vegetables or, hey, I think you should try changing your diet in this way. Um, and so usually what I will try to do is kind of coach the patient, especially a teenage patient, um, try to coach them into, hey, you're going to be on your own soon. Um, you know, you're in high school now. Uh, it's important to start thinking about, like, how do you feed yourself? And so let's think about, like, what are some things that uh, you do like to eat um, that are fruits or vegetables? And I might even go through if they do go to Burger King um, or 
in Alabama, Chick-fil-A is uh, an all-time favorite. So I might walk them through like what their right, what their routine order is at that restaurant um, and then ask them if there are any other things they think they could get at the restaurant um, that would balance out a my plate kind of situation. So the classic example I use at Chick-fil-A is if somebody normally gets fried chicken sandwich and fries and a Coke, could we change that to like, do you like a fruit cup or is it possible? that we could get one of the salad sides instead of the fries and then maybe get water or unsweetened tea, God forbid, in the South, uh, <laughs> that we get unsweetened tea. Um, but, uh, you know, really talking them through, like, you can do this at the restaurants that you eat at. You can do this at the uh, family reunion buffet. Um, you can get greens or you can get coleslaw um, with your mac and cheese and with um, the barbecued chicken. And that is still creating a balanced plate um, and giving your body those mac macronutrients um and and it's still better in terms of kind of encouraging some positive sustainable changes um than trying to force somebody who eats the bk diet into into eating bok choy every night bok choy inception me wow i'm getting so hungry just talking about all this southern food this is an unintended side effect of this podcast with with you from um from the South. This is awesome. Um, So I think, you know, this has come up a little bit, but, um, you know, when we're talking about BMI in the clinic, um, or we're talking with our preceptor about um, BMIs, you know, I always have this question, like, where does it come from? And how helpful of a metric is it actually? Yeah, and I actually had the same question. And I'll be honest, it was really hard to find the answer um, of where the pediatric BMI scale originated from. So I started trying to look through PubMed and some other more reputable kind of looking for articles that would be explaining the the background. And the best information I could find um, was from the CDC website itself. So it states the data used to create the scales came from information collected on national surveys of growth measurements of children in the U.S. from 1963 to 65 and 1988 to 1993. And then the percentiles by age were created based upon expert consensus. Yeah, experts consensus. Um, So important for us to remember that expert consensus is the lowest level of evidence when it comes to population health screening. So I think that the bottom line is it may be a useful tool in some situations, but we need to be looking at the patient as a whole um, when assessing their health, not just thinking of their BMI as a way to classify that. And so it's interesting, several studies have then looked into kind of some flaws in the application of the pediatric BMI scale, both from a research standpoint, but also in the clinical application. And there really is significant variability between children of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, children of different genders, um, and a lack of reliability in predicting the risk of metabolic syndrome. So one study showed that um, a black boy and a white boy of the same BMI Um, had significantly different um, body mass composition determined by DEXA. And so it's just interesting, essentially, um, to show that there is not a lot of reliability of this measure that we are using frequently because the the body mass composition can be very different. So just because somebody's weight is higher uh, proportional to their height doesn't really give you any information about whether that's lean body mass or whether that is fat body mass. Um, and does that have any predictive ability to tell us whether their health outcomes would be at higher risk or not? It's hard to say. 
And so this is uh, for <clears throat> not just based on the BMI, since this is not, but so since this is not a great metric, um, and since we're really just focusing on, on healthy lifestyle and not focused on weight loss, are there clear evidence-based recommendations um, surrounding nutrition and exercise that are kind of the 30,000 point view of what we're encouraging families and, and patients to pursue? Yeah. So I... I really like the 5210 model, and that's what I like to teach and use myself in clinical practice. Um, so I'll kind of go through that. It focuses on actionable health promoting behaviors rather than focusing on the weight aspect of the health model. So, one, um, so five stands for five fruits or vegetables per day. Two is two hours or less of screen time um, per day. One is one hour of movement daily, and zero is zero sugary sweetened beverages. I usually explain what sugary sweetened beverages are to patients. But juices, sports drinks, sodas, um, and sweet tea in the South, as I mentioned. So those are uh, those are the kind of the principles that I start with, and then we kind of talk through um, using that as a model to set goals. I explain these are kind of guidelines and these are not black and white rules. So in order to live a happy, healthy life, um, we're going to have a glass of lemonade every now and then, or we're going to have a meal that has no vegetables and that is okay and normal. But the important thing is that we're working towards changing our daily habits so that we're drinking more water, we're eating more vegetables and fruits, and we're supporting healthy bodies and minds. So a couple other things that were nutrition, that were evidence-based guidelines or tips that you can give families in terms of um, improving their family and children's overall health. So eating at least one meal uh, with family seven days a week is predictive of increased fruit and vegetable intake long-term healthy eating patterns, and it's actually protective against eating disorders, binge eating, and dieting. So I think that's, you know, something that we all encourage families to do is eat a family meal, but um, it really is something that is evidence-based, and and so I like to support that. Encouraging parents to avoid weight talk, which we've touched on a little bit, um, as weight talk has been associated with dieting, purging, binge eating, and eating disorders. Encouraging parents to encourage um, or to foster a healthy body image. So patients that have a healthy body image, regardless of their BMI are more likely to exercise, um, more likely to eat healthfully, and more likely to feel positively about their body. And then parents should be encouraged to offer healthy options at structured mealtimes without feeling the pressure that they have to force their kid to eat um, those healthy foods. And so I really try to take the pressure off of parents with that, that piece of information, especially. This is great. I love it. The 5210, eating with family, avoid weight talk, and fostering body image and healthy options at structured mealtimes, evidence-based ways to implement this framework. This has been great. And I think, again, is a somewhat of a paradigm shift in uh, in medicine. And so it, it's great to get to focus on that for, for a full episode. We've talked about a lot. What are would you say your main take-home points are for our listeners? What are the key things you want people to walk away from this podcast with? Yeah. So I... Um... I would say the most important thing I want people to take away is that health does not equal thinness and obesity does not equal comorbidities. Um, So patients of all body sizes should be getting guidance on health promoting behaviors at their well child checks. Um, So don't assume how a patient is eating or exercising based on their size. Ask everybody what their eating habits are like and give them information so that they can make positive changes and um, decisions for themselves and their families. Secondly, be inquisitive and think about the background factors that contribute to weight gain. Um, so dig for information from families about trauma, ACEs, stigma, family environment, access to food, education status when you're taking histories rather than um, diving straight into giving them 
um, blind information about fruits and vegetables. And then finally, when counseling patients with obesity, address those underlying risky behaviors rather than focusing on weight. So use BMI as a tool rather than a diagnosis. Ask questions so you can understand what barriers your patient has in pursuing health-promoting behaviors and partner with them to support them in healthy lifestyle changes. And then lastly, I mean, really the one of the last biggest takeaways that I wanted to give everyone is that dieting for intentional weight loss is a risk factor for obesity and eating disorders. And so if you take nothing else away from this talk, just that really looking at uh, ways that we can encourage positive changes without encouraging diets um, or dieting with the intention of weight loss in children, especially. Wow, this is this is awesome. This is such robust, clear, like take home points. Great great things that I'm going to be like implementing in clinic this Thursday. Watch out, Justin. Um, (laughs) But one last question. Do you have anything you'd like to plug um, for people that are interested in learning more? Um, um, There's so much I'm sure that that you could share, but what, what could people check out? Yeah. Um, so I mentioned previously the book, um, Intuitive Eating. I think that's one that um, everyone should take a look at. Additionally, some other resources that I love. Christy Harrison is a uh, registered dietitian and um, public health expert that does a lot of work um, in weight stigma, t- in reducing weight stigma, as well as um, kind of work in the um, fat activism um, world. And so I think that she's a really wonderful resource in looking at all of the bias that is involved in um, um, weight science, quote unquote. Um, feeding littles is a great resource. I think that um, pediatricians can look at um, for some practical guidance. So this is an occupational therapist um, and a feeding and a uh, sorry a, a dietitian um, who work together as feeding therapists. And I'm not sponsored by any of them, uh, but they have a <laughs> they have a course where they teach about ways to introduce food and um, avoid picky eating. But they also give tips um, for parents, and I think they can be really helpful in terms of having um, some education to be able to help troubleshoot for parents in clinic that have questions about how to be presenting meals and how to be introducing new foods um, to children that may be otherwise averse to bok choy and other um, yeah. <laughs> other new vegetables and fruits <laughs> that they might not be familiar with. Um, and then finally, I put one other book on here. Um, so How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, uh, Raising the Next Generation with Food and Body Confidence. Um, and this is a book that's kind of um, a spinoff of uh, the intuitive eating uh, book for that's more geared towards parents and um, encouraging intuitive eating or listening to your body um, in children as well. Wow. These are so awesome. And I, I can't help myself. I have to plug something too. I hope that's yeah, okay, Janning, not yes. stealing your thunder. But as you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about learning more about this topic. And um, a TED Talk is like always something that I feel like people have time to watch. So I'm going to throw this in the show notes, but there's a TED Talk called Lose Hate, Not Wait by Virgie Tovar. She is a writer and fat activist that she's actually one of the first people that I read um, her book, You Have the Right to Remain Fat. And it like totally changed the way that I, you know, thought about this topic and really like helped me kind of uncover some of the biases and misconceptions I held. So I would definitely recommend watching that TED Talk and, and then picking up her book. It's very um, short. It's You could read it like on a train ride. Too, wow. So. I'm excited. I'm glad I got, a, I got a recommendation as well. This has been awesome. This has been great. Thank you so much for, for sharing your time and expertise with us. Um, and again, I think it's uh, it's a privilege to get to be a platform to echo all the wonderful work that you are doing in, in really helping to shift the framework of how we view 
uh, weight in the clinic and what we can do to better serve our patients, focusing on health, nutrition, and exercise, and not a number on a scale or a dot on a growth curve. So uh, thank you for, for joining us. We, we are so grateful for you. Thank you for being uh, on The Cribsiders. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our wonderful producer for this episode, Dr. Becca Raymond Coulter, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Becca Raymond Coulter. And this has been Chris, the Chi Man Chiu. Thank you and good night or whatever time it is where you are. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. BCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.